Anyone relate to that video? That's what, that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm the author of Quest 52. I know you've been going through it as a church. I hope it's been helpful. For those of you that are brand new here, that means nothing to you. Or if you're watching online, Quest 52 is a year-long pursuit of Jesus. His person, his power, his passion, his preaching. And for me, I call it Quest because for me, it has been a lifelong quest. Some people have asked me, how long did it take you to write that book? About 40 years. Now, the writing itself was about two years, but the preparation was 40 years. It actually goes back farther than that because my quest to follow Christ began in earnest when I was 12 years old. And my mom came home and announced to the family that she and my dad are splitting up. When she left our family, she also left the church. So at 12, my brothers and I knew we had to, we had to make a choice of whether we're going to live with mom or live with dad. Is it pretty difficult choice for a 12 year old. Most of you have been through worse, so I understand that. But for me, the question was not who did I like better or who did I relate to better? For me, the question was which one of them is going to help me pursue Christ? Now, as a 12 year old boy, I was a knucklehead. I promise you, like I wasn't super spiritual, but the Holy Spirit was just protecting me. And then at 16 and 18 and 21, I had these pivotal moments in my life where I had to make a decision, was I going to follow Jesus or not? And when I went to Bible college, moved from Sacramento, California to a small town in the Midwest to go to this Bible college, trained preachers, it was to pursue Christ. And I've been running hard after him and he he keeps surprising me with the, the stories I read about him. They just keep in my face saying, you realize this is 2,000 years old, but it is so contemporary. It is so right now. And the little passage we're going to look at from Luke chapter 10, it's only four verses. It's just a little little thing. It's going to hit you right between the eyes because it talks about anxiety. Over the years in America, we've had a lot of mental disorders and psychology has grown up as a discipline. You realize in the last few decades, they have added anxiety to the list of disorders. Right now in America, anxiety disorder is the most common disorder that people have. In the 1990s, it was one in five people struggled with an anxiety disorder. That was before the market crash of 2007. That was before COVID. Today, it's not one in five. It is one in two. So just look at the person next to you and see that you or them. Like one of you. And what I mean by disorder is that your level of anxiety is high enough that it lowers your quality of life. It could be uh, you don't sleep like you should. You're not as effective at work as you should. It is impacting your marriage or your relationship with kids or friends. It it, it impacts your uh, uh, ability to work out or your ability to enjoy a concert. When your anxiety is high enough that it lowers your quality of life, that's a problem. And right now, one in two. But I'm not just concerned about the one in two. I'm concerned especially about the one in two. In 11, one in 11 people, just count down the row, has thoughts of suicide right now. And it's not just unbelievers that are wrestling with this. 
Believe it or not, a, a woman that worked at our church, I've worked with her for over a decade, phenomenal worker. She's just, her ability to plow through projects is unprecedented. You've met a person like that, they're nuts. She rose in our organization to become an executive assistant. Her desk was 10 feet from my office. I saw her every day, but one day I came in and her desk was empty. And I asked her boss, Tony, and I said, what, where's Ashley? He said, well, her anxiety paralyzed her. She couldn't do her job, and so she quit. That was last January. Last month, I came home on a Friday. It's my day off, so I hadn't been home running errands. And my neighbor, who works from home, said, hey, did you, did you know what all those fire trucks were about? No, I wasn't even there, but apparently some fire engines like blew through our neighborhood. He said, I think they went to Jeff's house. Now, Jeff is a fire captain. And so I was pretty concerned. So I got in the car and went around through to the gated community where Jeff lives. And sure enough, there were about a dozen cars at his house. It was his house. And the reason that concerned me is I knew that his wife, Ashley, this extraordinary woman was having some real struggles and there was a there was a coroner's truck there and what had happened was Ashley because she she couldn't even get out of bed so Jeff took the boys to school 10 year old boy 13 year old boy and then he came home and she said hey could you run to Costco and get something so he did and when he came home he found her in the closet. She had taken her life with a rope. Now, strong marriage, deep faith. Their family Christmas card looks like a Hallmark card. How do you get to that spot where your anxiety doesn't just steal your quality of life, but steals your life itself? That's what I'm concerned about. One in 11 right now are wrestling with that. And I just want to say to you, if you need medical help, please get medical help. But it always begins with the spiritual foundation of Jesus. And what Jesus is going to say to you today in this story will help you, whether you're one in five, one in two, or the one in 11. For God's sake, please start with Jesus. If you need medical help, go get that. If you need counseling, go get that. But let's just start with the word of God because here is the power of a spiritual life. And I was sharing with the team backstage, part of what frustrates me so much about this issue in, in our church and in your church is that for most of us, this is not necessary. We're listening to the voice of the world more than the voice of God. God has planned for you to be able to live a life that is anxiety-free. If we would just submit to what he has to say about us and to us. Now, before we open the text, let me just clarify a couple things. Just so we're clear, worry and anxiety are different. Worry is in your head. Anxiety is in your body. Worry is when you're thinking about something, am I going to get to the airport on time? I left a little late and the traffic is bad. Like across the bridge, when is it not, right? If you're worried about something that is like specific, that's in your head, that's not necessarily a problem. It may not be necessary, but it's not a problem. But when it settles into your body, 
And often worry becomes anxiety right here and you get a headache. Not a headache for an hour or two, but for a week or 10. Sometimes it settles a little bit lower right here in your chest and you just, you can't breathe. You can't fill your lungs with air. That is anxiety, not just worry. And sometimes it's deeper, it's in your heart and your heart begins to race. That's a problem. Or it'll settle a little lower in your stomach. And it's not just an upset stomach, but your digestive system gets out of whack. You know what I'm saying. If you have trembling in your hands or insomnia at night or, or, or fatigue or lethargy in your entire body, that is a physical problem. It's moved from your head to your body. That is anxiety and we've got to take care of it. The other difference between worry and anxiety is uh, worry is specific. I'm afraid I won't catch my flight. That's specific. If it is nebulous, like I'm worried about flying. Well, what do you worry about? You're going to crash? No, I'm just worried about flying. Or, or are you worried that, that like you won't get on the plane or you'll get in the middle seat between you know, uh, two rhinoceroses or something? Like that's a specific concern on an airplane. But if it's just I'm afraid to fly, that is anxiety. Those are different. And the problem with anxiety that is nebulous is that, is that it's a ghost that chases you wherever you go. You can't fight it because you can't put your hand on it. That's the difference between worry and anxiety. And it is destroying the quality of our life and in some people's case, it's destroying life itself. So are you ready to hear what the word of God has to say about this? Yeah. It's a simple story in Luke chapter 10. And we're gonna pick up reading in verse 38, but there's actually... Luke doesn't tell us this, John does. There was a big feast right before this banquet. The feast was called Hanukkah. And not in the Bible, but it's just a feast that Jesus went up to. It was December, so it's kind of chilly. The mountains of Jerusalem are 2,500 feet above sea level. It's kind of cool up there. And so think of a, of a brisk wind, maybe a flurry of snow. It's dank and it's wet and it's cold, but the festival itself is a blast. Jews love Hanukkah. I mean, the dreidels, come on. And so Jesus is up there at this feast. His brothers say, are you going to come up to the feast? His brothers don't like him. They think he's nuts. And they're going, look, you claim to be the Messiah, but you preach up here in Nazareth. Go down to the big city and see how that flies. Well, you do your little magic tricks up here in Capernaum. Go down to the capital and see if that flies. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. He said that a lot. Through the book of John, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. But now, in this section, his time is coming. It's three months before he'll be crucified. And it was tense in Jerusalem. In John chapter 7, 8, and 9, a dozen times it says they tried to arrest him. <laughs> Look at a slippery fella. About a half a dozen times it says they tried to kill him. Once they tried to stone him. Just so we're clear, that's with a bang, not a bong. <laughs> I can tell who grew up in the 70s. You're welcome. <laughs> And so the, the, the disciples are actually really, they're on point, they're nervous. And when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he passes through a little village called Bethany. It's even higher in the hills. 
It looks down on Jerusalem. That's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. You, you remember them. Now, Lazarus has not yet died. He will in a couple months, and Jesus will raise him up again. That's right before Jesus is crucified. So we're, we're, at, we're at this pivotal point, and they're looking at Jesus, and they want to arrest him. They want to kill him. The disciples are nervous, and Martha is excited. He says, oh, Jesus, you, you got to come to the house. Have you got any Marthas? It's just, you're like, you are, you are the hostess with the mostess. And yet you will nearly kill your family before the guests come over. You've just self-identified. I get it. And so she's going, you invite Jesus, make sure he comes. And so Lazarus, I mean, it's a, it's a seven-day feast. So he's saying to Jesus, hey, listen, if you don't come to my house, like I'm a dead man. Martha is going nuts. So Jesus says, all right, all right, I'll bring the boys. There's 13 grown men. That's a big banquet. And so Martha, excited, but she begins, what do you say in, uh, around here? The, the fasten. She's fasten. And so she, she goes to the market and she brings Mary, but it's got to be a younger sister. I can't prove it, but she was the irresponsible one. So clearly a younger sibling. And she goes, Mary, come on, let's go to the market. Let's, okay, we're going to need, uh, let, let's get five, five of the chickens. Oh, that's not enough. There's 12 men. They eat a lot. Let's get, let's get eight of the chickens. And um, let's see, oh, that pork over there. Wait, no, we're Jews. We can't do that. So now we're going to, let's get some Mogan David. How many bottles? Oh, they're fishermen. We'll need 12 at least. And so she's fussing over everything. She fusses over the matzah. She fusses over the hummus. She fusses over everything. And, but she's going to have a party ready. So the men come in. Mary has been helping up to this point. But as soon as Jesus arrives, she stops helping because she wants to sit at Jesus' feet. Okay, so you gotta imagine, they call it a triclinium. It's a, it's a room designed just for a meal. And there's a horseshoe, they're not really tables, they're more like cushions. They lay on the ground, left arm, and they have an opening in the middle of the U. And Jesus and Lazarus would be at the top of the U and the disciples around the edges. And you should have been there. Martha is coming in and bringing the food into the middle of the U and serving them. Can I get you some more wine? How is everything doing? You doing okay? How do you like that? That was my grandmama's recipe of hummus. It's the best. So the story begins like this. Now, as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And all God's people said, uh-oh, because she's a woman. She's supposed to be in the kitchen. Hey, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what Jewish culture was like. You know how many rabbis allowed a woman to sit at their feet? Zero. Zero. So imagine Martha, and I, I'm going to apologize to the cameraman right now. Martha's going into the kitchen and then back out to the banquet hall. She's into the kitchen and then back out to the banquet hall. And every time she brings another order, oh, these olives are just divine. And, you know, here's the, the hummus. Do you need some more matzah for your meal? And she's filling up. And every time she comes in, she's getting more and more irritated with Mary. Because Mary's just, just there at Jesus' feet while he's teaching. And she's doing all the work. And you know, <laughs> some of you will get this, like she can put on a fake smile, but inside she's seething. Oh, honey, is everything good? 
Like some of you women, if looks could kill, you would be in prison <laughs> for life. And so Martha comes in, uh, Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, finally she just can't keep it in anymore. Lord, don't you, she's cranky. Don't you care that my sister left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. The word left is actually the Greek word that means abandoned. She's abandoned me. Little melodramatic. Jesus, you got, you got to, tell her to, to tell her to help me. This is only right. She shouldn't be at the feast. She shouldn't be in the kitchen with me serving because that's what's really important, right, is serving. And Jesus doesn't give her the answer she wants. And we just got to wonder, where did Jesus' Judeo-Christian work ethic go? Because he's supposed to tell her, do your service. But what Jesus says is, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, <laughs> Now that <laughs> is not in your English translation. <clears throat> it's in the Greek. <laughs> you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And if I were to put this whole message in a sentence, it would be this. Until Jesus becomes your one thing, you can be taken by anything. Until Jesus is your one thing, you can fall victim to anything. And for you, one in two or one in five or one in 11, at the, at the root of the problem, there may be some biological issues. See a doctor. There may be some psychological issues. See a counselor. But at the root of all of it, is that Jesus is not fully your one thing. And we, he becomes the one thing. Everything is put into perspective. So what do we do with this? I wanna offer some simple suggestions of practical things that you can walk away with today to make your life less prone to anxiety. These are all very spiritual. I want to talk about your body, your soul, and your spirit, because that's the three parts of you. Fair enough? So with your body, some people will talk about deep breathing. I actually think that's very helpful and very spiritual, because after all, the word for spirit in both Hebrew and Greek is breath. And sometimes that just that exercise of breathing will help you pay attention to the spirit of God in you and for you. But with your body, I don't want to talk about breathing. What I actually want to talk about is serving. And you go, now wait a second, wasn't that Martha's problem? No. Martha's problem was not that she was serving others. Martha's problem was she was serving herself. I'm, I'm coming straight at you right now, especially you hostess with the mostess. When you throw a banquet, it's easy to say, I did this for them. Did you? Or did you do it for you? For your reputation to be seen, to be heard. Jesus didn't ask for all of that meal. He asked for people just to be with him. And she wasn't with him because she was so busy building her own reputation in serving. And often 
what we've noticed is people who serve themselves, they act like they're serving others. There's a whole book about this called When Helping Hurts. When you're trying to be someone else's hero rather than actually you're building your own reputation to be a hero rather than to serve someone who really can't pay you back at all. Let, let me clarify this. Martha was throwing a banquet that Jesus didn't ask for, that Jesus didn't need, so that she could be the center of attention. But when you serve others, and I'm going to lean into my favorite psychotherapist, Jordan B. Peterson. He, he, he's not known to be a Christian, although some people are asking whether he is now or not. But that's not my point. My point is, for 30 years, he has been a secular psychotherapist. When I heard him say this, it took my breath away. That the number one thing anyone with a mental illness can do is to serve others. Because it takes the focus off yourself and puts it on to the other. And there's actually some real physiological wisdom in this. All of us need, it's a chemical called serotonin. I love it. I'm addicted to it. Serotonin is that chemical of significance. When someone recognizes you as important. And the problem is... A lot of us are trying to get serotonin from a boss, from a coach, from a mentor. It is hard to get serotonin from people above you. You have to work extra hard and you have to fight all the competition. But when you serve someone below you, someone who cannot pay you back, it could be a child, it could be a homeless person, it could be someone in your organization that is struggling as a, as a newbie on the job. But when there's someone that they cannot pay you back and yet you help them along. The serotonin you get from them is immediate and it is permanent. They will always see you as a mentor. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Martha is trying to get her serotonin from Jesus who is above her rather from, than from serving those around her who actually really need it. And I just want to talk to you men here. Women tend to have a, a much more servant-oriented heart. So I'm just going to talk to you boys, Okay. Dudes, we want to be recognized by being the man, by doing something significant, having the community go, oh, yes, sir, here's a parking place, sir. If you get that, you will put a target on your back for every other man around you. That's dumb. And if you get that, other people are going to try to take you out so that they can get that. But if you serve people below you, people who cannot pay you back, that is a permanent level of serotonin. Here's the cool thing. Your brain cannot tell the difference between serotonin that comes from above and comes from below. Why do you think our Lord Jesus Christ said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And when you start giving your life away rather than building your life up, you will have an, an anxiety-free life because you'll have all the serotonin you ever need. So where do you get it? Well, I'm going to make one suggestion. And I say this uh, at the church that I serve, I say it all the time. When I meet men, if you want to serve, where you can serve the quickest and the most effective, you will be so honored, like unbelievably honored, is with children under four. And every time I see a couple at our church wearing the church, kids' shirts, they're wearing it together, like he's serving, she's serving, I, are you serving in the same room? When they say yes, I ask the question. Every time I ask the same question to the woman, does it bother you? 
that he doesn't even try and the kids like him better. And she goes, yes. And, I, and but then they say, actually, I really, I, I love it because dudes, all you got to do is be in the room. Sometimes you're just being in the room and these kids will look at you and go, well, I don't know that I'd be really recognized. You don't need to be recognized from above if you're recognized from below. Okay, I'll stop there. Serve. And if you haven't served, on the, on, the, on the screens, there's a little QR code. Find it around. Find it in the lobby. If you want to serve, just go out the doors to the right, to the family room, and say, hey, I got to serve somewhere around here. They will set you up. Don't wait. Do it today. The second thing is, is with your soul. We, we are made of body, soul, and spirit. And part of what will make our soul at rest, this is sneaky, is thankfulness. I have a friend of mine, he's part of our staff, he's actually an important part of our staff. He has always struggled with mental illness. It's just part of his biological makeup. And he's going through a tough time right now. I said, what are you doing to help monitor your levels of anxiety? And he said, every morning and every night, I physically write down three things that I'm thankful for. You think, that really won't work. Actually, this is scriptural. Philippians chapter four, verse six says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thankfulness is kryptonite to anxiety. For the same reason that serving is kryptonite to anxiety, because when you serve, you are forced to be outward focused rather than inward focused. Anxiety at its root is due to an inward focus. And when you can go outward through service and outward through thankfulness, it just reduces your level of anxiety. Look, we're not going to eliminate anxiety. As long as you have a smartphone, you will never eliminate anxiety. As long as you live in the world, as long as you breathe, you're not going to eliminate anxiety. But can you minimize it so that the threshold of your anxiety is not lowering the quality of your life? The third part of our being is our spirit. And the, the spiritual advice I would give you for lowering anxiety is to talk to God. So I'm going to read the same passage again, Philippians 4, 6. Listen to what he says about anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Instead of, instead of letting your emotions talk to your mind, why don't you let your spirit talk to your God to lower your anxiety? In fact, I'll go one more than that. Instead of letting your emotions talk to your head, why don't you let your head talk to your emotions? Don't just talk to God, talk to your own spirit. There's an interesting psalm, 42 verse five. You've heard it before. Why, my soul, are you downcast? He's talking to his own soul. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He's telling his soul. Instead of letting his emotions speak to his mind, he's letting his mind speak to his emotion. He's telling his soul, be at rest. 
As you talk to God, you can talk to your soul. It was 1871. A wealthy man in Chicago, he had not, he wasn't just an attorney, made a lot of money doing that. He was also a real estate investor. But in 1871, you might recall, was a Chicago fire. And Horatio Stafford had much of his wealth wiped out in the fire. He still had his wife, Anna, and five children, four girls, one boy. That same year, his son contracted a disease and died. So he loses a lot of his wealth, he loses his son, and he said to his wife, we just need to rest. So they planned a vacation in Great Britain. He still had some business to attend to, so he put Anna and the girls on a ship and closed up the business, but en route in the Atlantic, their ship struck another ship. Catastrophically, 200 people died. Anna did not, but all four of her girls drowned in the depths of the Atlantic. She got to London and sent a telegram back to Horatio Stafford. It said, all is lost, what will I do? He got on a, a ship as soon as he could and headed her way. They were gonna pass the spot where the accident took place in the middle of the night and he told the captain, come wake me up. And he stood on the deck of the boat looking into those icy waters that had stolen the life of his children. And he penned these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's not the circumstances of your life that will rob your anxiety. It is the focus of your life that will rob your anxiety. Some of you are on the deck looking down into the icy waters right now. Can you speak to your soul the truth of God? I've asked Sam to, to come and help me with this part of the message. We're going to pray right now. We're going to talk to God. And we're going to talk to our own souls. You can just stay seated right where you are. Speak to God. Speak to your soul. It is well.